Hey, podcast listeners, hope you're doing well, and I hope you are winning contracts. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to share something with you that's working for our clients. Our federal access knowledge base is helping companies win contracts every single day. I regularly get emails from members thanking us and saying things like, hey, I just won a $2 million contract. Many of you have seen a video that Chris Danback shot for us at GovCon. Chris won two contracts totaling $30 million. One of our members emailed me this morning and said, the turning point that opened my eyes was using federal access to establish a professional and systematic business development and RFP process. I've now won two contracts worth $480,000. Federal access is helping a lot of companies win. It can help you too. So here's the deal. I have a special offer for you. Visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers today and get started for just $29. You're going to get access Access to a digital copy of the government sales manual, over 70 strategy videos, more than 30 webinars, 300 documents and templates, and one of my favorite pieces is SME support. So when you run into any issue, any challenge at all, you can email me directly for help. So go check out the special offer today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. The link is in the description below the podcast. So go check that out today, federal-access.com forward slash game changers so you can get started for just $29 today. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. My name is Michael Lejeune and I will be your host today on Game Changers and I want to get right into the show by welcoming our guest Stephen Coprince. Stephen is the managing partner of Coprince Law. Stephen, please take a minute to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your company. Great. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me on the podcast today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I am the managing partner of Coprince Law, LLC. Uh, we are a government contracts boutique law firm, currently five attorneys. We focus exclusively on representing federal contractors with Federal Contracts Matters. That includes FAR compliance, GAO bid protest claims, appeals, uh, SBA certification programs, and so on. So, Stephen, one of the things I want to do is I actually want to do a quick plug for you guys because uh, when I wanted to, to bring on an attorney, I, I specifically wanted to bring on somebody who really understood government contracting. And so I put a plug out on uh, LinkedIn and everybody recommended you. And so that that was awesome. I'd heard you speak at a couple of conferences. And so I think really, really highly of what you do. And not only that, I, I want to tell everybody before you get started today, if you are in government contracting, your normal attorney that you may get your will done or something like that is probably not the guy you need to speak to about government contracting. You need an expert like Steven and his team. And so that's why I wanted to bring these guys on here today and talk to you so you could get familiar with, with a firm that really understands government contracting. So I wanted to say that right out of the gate. So our, our topic for today is actually, we're going to be talking about the woman-owned small business program changes because we're sitting here in November of 2016 when we're recording this, and there was just recently some changes to the woman-owned small business program. And so I actually wanted to bring Stephen on because he's an expert at this and let him kind of educate us on what those changes were. And so right out of the gate, you know, I, I understand that there were some changes to that program and you know, the, the disadvantaged woman-owned small business status, you know, that, that people may hear. And um, I wanted to bring you on so you could first talk to us about 
about the change and how women-owned businesses can take advantage of it. Yeah, well, well it's a, a very timely topic, of course. Yeah, the, the federal government has various socioeconomic certification programs, various classifications of small businesses that receive special contracting opportunities. And the, the latest and greatest iteration of these socioeconomic programs is the woman-owned small business program. And that's really been up and running since about 2011. But uh, it was never quite as powerful as the other socioeconomic programs out there. And one of the ways uh, that this program suffered versus other socioeconomic set-aside programs like the 8A program that I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, the Hub Zone program, and the Service Disabled Veteran-Owned Small Business Program. Those are really the three other big three socioeconomic programs the federal government runs, is that for uh, the first few years of its existence, participants in uh, other socioeconomic programs, 8A and so on, could receive sole source contracts. That's no bid contracts below certain dollar values. Women-owned small businesses could not. And so there was a, a major push made by WSBs, we call them, uh, advocates, to include sole source authority for WSBs. Um, that has been uh, approved. It was adopted by, by Congress, which allowed uh, uh, the SBA to implement the authority. SBA implemented it in its regulations. And then the FAR Council, which is responsible for writing the, the rules that constitute the federal acquisition regulation, uh, essentially copied that into the FAR. So the sole source authority for women-owned small businesses is out there, it's active, WSBs are eligible to receive at certain dollar values, depending on their, their industry, uh, no compete contracts, which is a great boon for those those companies. Yeah, and, and I have to assume that a lot of woman-owned small businesses prior to this change thought that was part of their certification. You know, they, they falsely assumed, well, it, it works for those others that you just mentioned, um, like the SDVOSBs and, and HubZone and things like that. So they probably falsely assumed that and just didn't realize, hey, this is not part of this certification. So I think that's a that's a very big distinction there, you know. It, which which kind of leads me to, you know, when we look at government, we look at a lot of these certifications and programs. We start to look at some of these like goaling reports, like the SBA goaling report cards, and the the latest one shows that the government met its woman-owned small business set aside goal. Does that mean that the program is thriving? Because it would, it would lead the average person to think, Hey, this program is really thriving. Yeah. You, you would think that based on the numbers alone, seeing the trend. Now I, I'll be the first to say, let's back up for a second and, and look at what the, the goal is 5%. All right. <laughs> 5% is not a whole lot. You know, that that's the government's goal. 5% to women owned uh, small businesses versus, you know, uh, the, the total small business goal is 23%. So you're saying, well, the other 18 would go to uh, to likely to mail-own uh, small businesses. So the, the goal itself is probably a little low. But beyond that, I think the problem is is that the government has adopted this woman-owned small business set-aside program that's designed to encourage federal contracting officers to set aside procurements specifically uh, for women-owned competition so that nobody but women-owned small businesses can compete. Or, as we were just discussing, to allow uh, contracting officers to issue sole source contracts to WOSB. And why do contracting officers want to do that? Uh, because the SBA is tracking progress toward this 5% goal, and the agencies want to meet their goal. And so the agencies, uh, as a whole at least, the government did meet their 5% goal for the first time last year, which is a good thing. Uh, but they did it primarily, the numbers show, by, uh, by what I call double dipping. Uh, in other words, instead of using the set-aside tools that are provided, the set-aside contracts for WSBs and the sole source contracts, 
uh, what government agencies did is they awarded small business set-aside contracts, 8A set-aside contracts, and so on to companies that also happen to be self-certified in the government's database called the SAM database as women-owned small business. And when that happens, the government's allowed to take credit in multiple categories. So they might be able to check the box for both an 8A and a woman-owned small business. And the GAO did a report about a year ago or so and showed that most of the woman-owned small business credit that the government's taking toward its goals uh, was the result of this sort of double dipping, not not using the WSB program itself. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think you know the government's going to double dip any way they can, right? They're, they're going to try to hit, hit, hit their goals where they can. Is there anything particular that you have seen, whether it's in industry or just in the government, what spurred them to go ahead and make this big change now? I mean, instead of implementing it in the beginning, and I know it's taken a long time to get to, what spurred this big change now? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and I think that the biggest uh, driving factor has been advocacy from women-owned small, uh, small business advocacy, advocacy groups, such as Women Impacting Public Policy, uh, the National Women's Chamber of Commerce, and others, who've really been driving this program from the get-go. You know, it's, this, this idea of having a women-owned small business program has been around probably 15 years or so now, and the original iteration of the program that the SBA came out with would have allowed set aside and so, uh, not no sole source, but set aside contracts only in four NAICS codes, four North American industry classification system codes out of the hundreds that are available. So the initial proposals for this program have always been very modest, very narrow, and it's been advocacy that's had to, to push us from the four NAICS codes up to 90 plus that are available now, uh, from no sole source up to sole source, and really stretching and pushing it at Congress and uh, other elected officials to put this program on on what the advocates would call parity or as close as you can with the other big three uh, socioeconomic programs we discussed. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I've seen a surge in the, the number of women-owned small businesses. I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I, I don't I don't know that I knew a single woman-owned small business in, in the government contracting space, and now uh, when I go to conferences and things like that, almost every person I meet, I, I mean, it's not everyone, right? But I just, the people that are going to conferences and things like that, I'm meeting more and more woman-owned small businesses. Out of the people that come up and speak to us after a session, maybe eight out of 10 of them are women. And they just started a business or they've been in business for 10 years. And so I'm really impressed with the volume of women-owned small businesses. And I wonder if that played a part in why people are advocating so heavily on this. So so it's, it's a very interesting time to, to see that going on. So um, I, I understand that you're actually on record as stating that woman-owned small businesses must be certified to pursue the woman-owned small business set-aside contracts. But the SBA says that you know you can still self-certify and that's still allowed two questions here one what is the difference between you know self-certification and, and a formal certification and two the the difference in opinion between what you're saying and what the SBA is saying yeah great question and I'll try not to get too uh, legally wonky as I uh, I respond to it here so the, the initial question the difference between self-certification and formal certification I mean each process is is uh, pretty much described by the name. So self-certification, the idea behind self-certification is that the woman-owned small business itself uh, reviews the requirements under the regulation, 13 CFR uh, Part 127, 
uh, determines that it's an eligible WSB, then goes into the SAM database that we were talking about and clicks the box that says I'm a certified or self-certified WSB. That's self-certification. And that would, under a self-certification system, make the company eligible for WSB contracts, although that self-certification could be challenged by competitors in a protest process. So that's, that's self-certification. Um, the formal certification process, of course, means that some third-party entity, be it uh, a governmental entity or a third party that's under contract uh, with a government entity, is uh, doing an advance review. And, and you cannot uh, just self-certify as being a WSB, but you have to actually get a piece of paper from a, a certifying authority uh, stating that you're uh, an eligible WSB. So that's really the difference between uh, the two processes. And it's worth worth noting that you know, the 8A program is a formal certification program. The SBA certifies 8A pro, uh, companies. HubZone is a formal certification program. Uh, SBA certifies HubZone companies. And the SUVSB program is kind of half and half. The VA certifies uh, formally companies to participate in VA SUVSB contracts, but the uh, for non-VA contracts, it's still a self-certification world. So it's mostly certifications out there for these these classes these days. So that's where we are now. WSB, um, when the program was created, was a self-certification program. Um, but it was kind of a little bit of a hybrid because what the SBA did is it said, you know, companies, you can either go self-certify in SAM, and if you do that um, and you win a WSB contract, then you have to produce various documentation, such as your operating agreement and so on, to sort of demonstrate after the fact that you qualify. Self-certification, what I call trust but verify, you know, self-certify and produce the documents. SBA also offered an alternative where they said, we, SBA, are going to contract with four nonprofit entities, um, U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce and uh, three others out there that do this. And you can go as a WSB or wannabe WSB to one of these third-party entities, uh, go through a certification process, obtain a formal certification, and at that point, uh, you can uh, avoid the trust but verify option. You can bid on a contract win it. You don't have to produce your documents after the fact, just produce your certification. That's the kind of odd hybrid system that, that SBA created back around uh, 2011 or so. Yeah, so, so and that's the system that existed up until um, the latter uh, month, late last month of 2014, when Congress in the 2015 National Defense Authorization Act simply went into the governing statute. That's the Small Business Act. The Small Business Act is the, the statute, the words that Congress actually writes. Uh, that authorizes the SBA to implement this program in the first place. And Congress simply deleted the piece of the statute that talked about self-certification. So the statute, uh, oversimplify here, the, the statute used to say uh, to, to obtain a WSB set-aside contract, you can either A, uh, be self-certified, or B, uh, have a formal certification, including one by one of these third-party entities. And so Congress essentially just crossed out A and said, nope, just formal mm -hmm. certification. And so that's what happened back at the, in, in, in the 2015 National Defense Authorization Act, almost uh, <clears throat> a couple of years ago now. Um, SBA, in my opinion, I don't know this for sure, was caught off guard by this change. I didn't realize this was coming. And so SBA's response was uh, essentially, well, until we figure out what to do with it, we're still going to allow self-certification. We're not going to force everyone to go to these four third-party certifiers, even though they are a valid certifiers under the statute. My problem with SBA's opinion um, is that they have never explained the legal rationale for it. In other words, they, they at SBA are essentially saying to 
uh, want to be woman-owned small businesses, you can do the exact thing that Congress just told you you can't do, which is self-certify. And to me, the law is pretty clear that when Congress makes a change to the statute, unless Congress uh, specifically says this change doesn't take place until a future date, the change takes place immediately. To me, that means that self-certification is no longer viable, but that has yet to be tested in a, in a court. Hmm. And so I guess the, the question that if I'm a woman-owned small business listening to the podcast today, the question I would have is, so are you saying if I go through the process, there is a chance if I'm, I'm, I go through and I actually win a contract, there is a chance the government could then ask me for the certification that I don't have and then I would lose the contract? Yeah, I mean, there's a chance, you know, what I tell my uh, clients who call their talk want to discuss whether it's a good idea to apply for formal WSB certification. I tell them my opinion, as I just expressed, I tell them SBA's party line opinion and say, that's what SBA is telling you. And I tell my clients that I don't want you to be the guinea pig. If, right. you know, when, right. if and when this thing gets decided in, in a court by a, by a protest or whatever, the, and maybe that'll never happen. Maybe SBA will conform to uh, the new regulation before a court case ever tested. But I'm, I'm a balance suspenders guy, especially when it comes to my uh, clients. I don't ever want a client coming back to me and saying, you said I could do X, I did X, and it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, my advice is um, until that court case does come or until the SBA conforms its regulations and eliminates self-certification, I don't want anybody uh, who's uh, coming to me for advice to be the guinea pig in that court case. Oh, that, that makes perfect sense. I sure wouldn't want to be the guinea pig, and I wouldn't want to be the person who wins a multi-million dollar contract or whatever it may be, only to find out I can't have it. Uh, that, that would not be a fun day in the office. So for, for woman-owned small businesses who want to become certified and kind of protect themselves against this, what are their current options to do this? That, that's a good, very good question. So the SBA has, as, as we mentioned, uh, set up that, that hybrid program, self-certification versus formal certification. And what SBA did is that they contracted with four nonprofits, um, the, the U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce, an entity called WeBank, uh, NWBOC is the third, and the uh, El Paso, I believe, Women's Chamber of Commerce is the, is the fourth. But it, it, all those four entities are authorized um, to uh, go through a, and certify a WSB in a formal process that would protect the woman-owned small business from any potential of being that guinea pig as we talked about. Now, the SBA is has acknowledged that Congress deleted self-certification. Even though they're saying you can still do it, they've acknowledged that, that, that the legal changes happened and said that we, SBA, are going to do something about it. That something could be expanding the third-party certification process, could be an internal SBA certification process. So, Right now, it's those four third-party certifiers whose names and contact information are available on the SBA's website. That's the only option now. Probably six months or a year from now, there'll be uh, another option, depending on how SBA applies this new rule. Okay. And and is there a cost associated with this? I mean, are, are there fees they have to pay those nonprofits to process the paperwork? Do you know that? There, there are. All those nonprofits do charge a fee, which has been a real point of contention you know, when when folks uh, complain about having to go or believing they have to go to these nonprofits, the fact that they're charging uh, fees is often the first complaint on their lips because applying to, for example, the Hub Zone program or 8A program doesn't uh, require the payment of a fee. Um, in my uh, experience, the fees are, are relatively modest. They're not going to break the bank of any uh, woman-owned small business 
that's had any modicum of success, I think, in the marketplace. But I think for a lot of WSBs, it's the principle of the matter that has them upset. Yeah. And especially when the other ones do not cost anything to then have this. Do you know roughly off the top of your head, are, are we talking a $500 fee, a $2,000 fee, or just a ballpark to give our listeners some, some kind of idea? Yeah, they, they they do vary by organization, but I would I think they're ranging from perhaps two fifty or three hundred up to six hundred, seven hundred dollars, something like that, depending on the the organization. There are there's one or two of those organizations that offer discounts to uh, companies that are already members of the organization. I got you. Yeah, and and that's like you said, it's fairly reasonable. I mean, you're you're not you can't even register your business in a lot of states without paying six seven hundred dollars, depending on the state you're in. So it's it's a fairly reasonable. To fee to expect. So I, I do have a question that um, I, I, I still want to talk some more about this woman on uh, small business stuff, but you, this brings up a question. So if I am a woman, but I'm also a service disabled veteran, which one is more important for me to pursue the, the, the service disabled veteran owned certification or the woman on certification? Or do I need both in, in your opinion? How would you advise a client who has both of those um uh, on this matter? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The, <clears throat> the first question I'd ask that client is, who, are, who, who is your federal customer or, or customers, or who do you want to be your federal customer or customers as your primary uh, line of business? If the answer is uh, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, then it's a no-brainer. The SDVOSB uh, certification is the preferred certification because uh, the VA, unlike other procuring agencies, has an obligation to prioritize veteran-owned companies above all other uh, certification types, including woman-owned small business. So if that's your customer, then uh, it's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. Now, if you tell me, hey, we don't really care about the VA, we're pursuing DOD work, uh, pursuing Department of Transportation or some other agency, now it becomes a little more nuanced. I would still say in this day and age, you're seeing more set-asides for SGVUSBs than you're seeing for woman-owned small businesses because of that double-dipping uh, issue we talked about earlier, and I think also because there's some uncertainty among contracting officers regarding the contours of the program. I mean, they're they're reading you know, blogs and articles out there saying certification, self certification. I don't know. I don't want to have to deal with this. Some of them are think are thinking that. So, so I think at this at this moment, um, I would encourage them to take a look at FPDS and G to see how their customers are buying, or use another analytic source to see, hey, the specific agencies and offices. We want to sell to. How are they setting aside uh, their procurements? Uh, the answer for most of them at this point is probably going to be more toward the SDVSB than WSB, but I think that's that's changing, hopefully in a positive direction for WSBs. And the good news is, and I you know met, met and and know several companies that have both of these certifications. I uh, was just at the Veterans Conference in Minneapolis a few weeks ago and met many of them there. Uh, you can't have both. It's, it's not an either or. In fact, you know if you as a woman and disabled veteran uh, qualify for one of the programs, there's a good chance you also qualify for the other because a lot of the requirements are very similar. Yeah, and, and that was going to be kind of my follow-up question. You know, do you, do you feel like um, you have a company would have an advantage if they had multiple certifications? Do they, does that really provide an advantage to them when, again, if, if VA is their client and VA is the primary thing they're looking for. But not only do I have this this uh, service disabled status, I also have a woman on a small business. I also have, you know, whatever it is that the government creates. I have all those. Do you, do you think having multiple certifications g- 
gives a company an advantage over a company who only has one? I think as as a general rule, it does. Um, each each additional certification you have among those big four uh, opens up a piece of the federal market that you wouldn't otherwise be able to compete in, um, because each of those uh, four certifications does have uh, contract opportunities that are reserved for one uh, type of certification or the other. Uh, there certainly are cases in which a government agency is going to give formal uh, valuation credit for having multiple certifications. That's not unheard of, where, for example, they might set it aside for SWSBs, but give you some sort of uh, valuation credit for also having other certifications, kind of the, <clears throat> the formal double dipping, it, as you were. Uh, the other place that's overlooked, where I think having multiple certifications helps, is for companies who are interested in being not just prime contractors, but subcontractors, uh, subcontractors to large businesses specifically, because these large businesses all have subcontracting plans and goals. They've got to meet uh, certain targets or are supposed to be trying to meet certain targets for each of those categories uh, that we discussed, and they can take <laughs> credit for, for dollars awarded under multiple categories. So have, being able to approach a large prime contractor and say, hey, we're, we're a qualified company, we can do X, Y, and Z, here's our capability statement, and by the way, we're both SDVSB and WSB, uh, that can be a powerful selling point. Uh, for companies that are interested in subbing to large primes. Mm, no, that's that's a really, really good point. Uh, my, my last question on the certification itself, do you happen to know uh, on average how long it takes, uh, you know, from the day I start the process till the day I have my certification? Are we talking, because uh, I'm not a woman, so I haven't been through it myself. Uh, I don't know if it, if it takes, you know, a month or two or six months or a year. I mean, we know the government can be really slow. So I'm just curious what you're seeing in the market. Yeah, I'm seeing several months from these uh, certifiers at this point. I, you know, it was it was certainly quicker back in the day when most companies weren't doing it because they were just self-certifying instead. Um, I have, I'm suspecting there's something of a backlog with some of these certifiers now. So my clients have been through the process uh, two, three, four months maybe to get uh, from point A to point B might be uh, faster in some cases. And of course, it's going to depend on which certifier you use and their, their current resources and backlog, et cetera. What I would suggest for, for anyone who's uh, considering the certification process is before picking a certifier just based on whether one's going to cost you $100 more than the other, see if you can get some information by calling them about what their current backlog is, their expectation on, on time frame, et cetera. They may give you some sort of you know, rosy glasses type answer, but you know if you can get someone to answer that question honestly, it may provide some some uh, insight as to which certifier is best at a particular moment in time. Yeah, no, no, that's a really good point because I think it's worth an extra hundred or two hundred dollars if you can get it done in a month versus six months. You know, if, if that's the backlog, especially if you're trying to aggressively pursue contracts. So, so I want to go back to the SBA for a minute. So you were, you were talking about the SBA probably taking some steps to incorporate this congressional mandate. You know, what steps? Is the SBA taking to address this? And, you know, when do you expect to see something formally from the SBA incorporating that? Yeah, you know, the SBA uh, originally uh, didn't do much except say we think self-certification is still viable and we acknowledge the change occurred. Um, then last year they put out essentially a, uh, a request for public feedback saying we realize this change occurred. Uh, we're trying to figure out the best way uh, to address it, keeping in mind that we here at SBA have limited resources and that in striking this uh, statutory language, Congress didn't fund SBA with the money necessarily to provide a full-blown internal SBA certification program. 
what do what do you, the public, recommend? And that that feedback happened. Uh, my understanding, uh, based essentially on uh, water cooler talk with people in the know, is that uh, we're likely to see a proposal on this in the next couple months. I know SBA was hoping uh, by year's end. Uh, to have a formal proposed rule, be a proposed rule in the Federal Register, nothing that would formally change the law. Presumably, they'll still say self-certification is still viable until a final rule comes out. But some sort of proposal that uh, comes to a conclusion as to how SBA wants to address this change. Are they going to try to expand the third-party certification program and improve it, uh, provide some sort of subsidy to reduce the fees? Because SBA has said in public settings where I've been present that they agree that that's a as a matter of principle, that that's a problem to require a fee-based uh, option as the only option? Or will SBA somehow say, we're going to find a way to reallocate resources so that we can take this certification program in-house the way we do with 8A and HUBZone? And so those options are all uh, on the table. They've probably come to a conclusion which way they want to go at this point, but they haven't shared it yet with me. Okay, so so hopefully in the first part of 2017, we'll see something from those guys. And that, that would be really great. So... Um, are there any common missteps or mistakes that, that you see companies making when applying for this woman-owned small business certification? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. And, you know, I, I would say that uh, I do see the, the same issues uh, kind of repeated over and over. Um, and it's, it's not the, co- the fault of the companies who are applying because they haven't been down this road before. Um, but having counseled a lot of folks who often come to us for the first time when they've been denied and say, hey, we got denied, can you help us now? And the answer is yes, usually we can, um, but uh, we've seen some of the same stuff. So let's take, the, the, I think the most common uh, certifier that folks are using probably for cost reasons is U.S. Women's Chamber. Um, what U.S. Women's Chamber does as part of its application is it, it provides a kind of a checklist form that says, tell us the names of the people who were involved in the following uh, managerial uh, functions in the company. They'll list, you know, eight or ten things: hiring and firing employees, you know, managing finances, you know, all the sorts of things that are part and parcel of management. And so, what you know, honest uh, women-owned small businesses do is they read the form and they list anybody who is involved in it. Not necessarily the person who's controlling it, but anyone who's involved in it. And that often includes men, you know, someone who's a vice president or a treasurer or whatever the case is. And the way that U.S. Women's Chamber interprets that, their, their own form, is that if you provide a man's name but don't provide any explanation uh, accompanying the form as to how that man's uh, managerial involvement is constrained, controlled by the women who are supposed to manage the company, they, that's an automatic denial. That's, that's an automatic denial. And so people come back to me and say, wait a second, we just, you know, this guy sits in on, on interviews, but I make the final hiring decision. And I say, let's see your form. Oh, you listed a man as being involved in hiring and firing, and you didn't explain how his power is constrained, so they just denied you. You know, and that's whether that's right or wrong. That's kind of what they're what they're doing over there, and so it's part of just understanding that the requirement to be in WOSB is not just woman ownership, but woman control, unconditional uh, control by women. And when you, with that mindset, approaching the form, you can do it in an honest way that still explains that ultimate control resides with with the women. 
Right. No, I, I think that's a really big point. And, you know, it, it, just like everything in government, right, understanding how to fill out the form is just as important as knowing, you know, what, what to fill in here and there. So just really understanding the intent of the form, how to fill it out, that's a really big deal. And I think, you know, part of the reason people reject that is I actually have the women that have told me more often than not that, you know, I get grilled a lot on, are you active in the company? Are you, what role do you play? You know, do you just own it in name and, you know, your husband or somebody else runs it? I mean, they want to know because in the past, I'm not saying it is the way it is today. In the past, a lot of people said, well, I want woman owned status, so I'm just going to make my wife the CEO, but she's not going to have anything to do with the company. Um, that, I mean, that did happen. I mean, and I'm sure it still happens today where people try to scam the system. And so people are trying to find out what is the true role here. And so that that's where the questions uh, originate on that. So that, that's really good information there. So one of my final questions for you, the true or false question, uh, if a company is certified by a state government under a state program as woman-owned, does the company automatically qualify as woman-owned small business for federal contracting as well? Uh, excellent question, and that, that answer is false. It's a, a very common misconception because the federal government's a little late to the party here. A lot of states have been running woman-owned business programs for quite some time, and, and to their credit, I think, for doing that. They're often called WBE or Women's Business Enterprise Programs, but each state that runs one has a different, different name for it. So one common misconception that I see among my clients and, and folks I meet at conferences and speak with in the industry is, hey, you know, I've been certified by, say, the state of California as a WBE. So that means that I also qualify uh, as a WSB for federal contracting purposes. It means that I've been certified for federal contracting purposes. Um, and the answer to that is no. You, you now the company may well meet the, the qualifications to be a federal WSB, uh, and having state WBE status or similar is a, is a good thing. Um, but keep in mind that each state has its own WBE program, and each state has its own requirements as to what constitutes uh, an eligible uh, entity in that program. When states are evaluating uh, women-owned businesses for compliance with their state programs. They're evaluating those companies against state law and state requirements. They're not looking at the federal law, 13 CFR Part 127, and figuring out whether the companies comply with that law. So a common misconception, the SBA actually cleared this up uh, in one of their recent um, federal register notices regarding how they were going to proceed moving forward with the WSB program and, and said, you know, uh, state WBE certifications uh, don't qualify a company automatically as a certified federal WSB, you have to have a separate federal certification. Again, currently the only ones available are through those third-party certifiers. Hmm. No, that, that's really important because, again, I, I think the biggest challenge most companies have is they don't know the rules. And you don't know the rules of the game you're playing, and you get right in the middle of the game, and somebody throws a penalty flag out, and you don't know why, and you lose a contract. And so the biggest thing that most companies can do is just get educated on the rules, what works, what doesn't. And I, I think that's what you did here for us today. So this has all been really good stuff. Any final thoughts for our listeners, whether they're trying to get certified or having trouble with that or just or just the laws? Any final tips for us? Yeah, and again, thank you very much, Michael, for having me. It's been, been a real pleasure here. Look, you know, I, as far as final thoughts go, I'm talking to a lot of folks out there at WSBs wannabe WSBs, et cetera, who are frustrated. Uh, this program is still in a stage of what I call growing pains. You know, it's, it's gone from a 
a little tiny program proposed for four next coach, now a bigger program, sole sources. They're hearing about contracts not being used, certification versus self-certification. It's enough to make someone want to throw their hands up. Um, you know, my, my, my opinion is, you know, stay the course with this. Um, the SBA and the government, they don't get it right overnight. Uh, you know, standing up a new program and making it work well takes time. Um, I do think there's going to be value in sticking with it, trying to get that certification, uh, meet, understanding what the rules are, as you uh, suggested, and, and qualifying. So if you're a company that's saying, geez, you know, this, this all sounds uh, too, too complicated, too frustrating, this program stinks, you know, what, what good is it? Uh, you know, most of these programs aren't that great when they're first, first set up, but eventually they, they end up being pretty powerful. Just look at the 8A program. Uh, VA's uh, veteran-owned small business program, which is a mess when they started it, but it's doing doing pretty well now. So, um, I may, I, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but if I were uh, WSB in this boat, I, I wouldn't wouldn't bail on it yet. I'd I'd see where this program ends up in three or four years. Uh, I I think that's great advice. You know, if you look at anybody that starts anything new, we're never good at it in the beginning, and the government's the same thing. So it's it's just a, you know a microcosm of society, right? And so it, just give them time, be patient, but stick with them. Uh, be an advocate, right? I mean, that's how this law got changed. Be an advocate for for the woman-owned small business program and do your part to actually make it better. So I, I think that's really, really good good advice there. So thank you again for all the wisdom on this, Stephen. I really, really appreciate it. I look forward to having you back on in the future to talk more about this stuff. Well, thank you again, Michael, and look forward to coming back again. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. You can also learn more about each of our guests by visiting the official Game Changers website at rsmfederal.com forward slash Game Changers, where we'll have links to their websites and contact information, social media, and that sort of thing. And last but not least, please visit our sponsor for today's episode, the Federal Access Program at rsmfederal.com forward slash FA for more information on how you can win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash Game Changers.